Last week we ended by reviewing Exodus and we ended with the setting up of the tent, the setting up of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And you will see that we're going to the next book, which is on page 90 of the Bibles that are available to you. In the beginning of Leviticus, we find that the tent has been set up. And now we're going to find out in the book of Leviticus what goes on in that tent, what goes on in that tabernacle. Obviously, I'm not going to read the whole book of Leviticus, but that will be the, the focus. The whole book of Leviticus will be the focus of, uh, of the sermon today. But I will just read uh, part of chapter 1 in order to give us a taste of what's going on uh, in the book of Leviticus and therefore in the tabernacle that we saw was erected in the, uh, in the wilderness. So Leviticus chapter 1, hear the word of the Lord. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons, and the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Likely many New Year's resolutions have crashed and burned on uh, the book of Leviticus. Uh, we decide that this year we're going to do what? We're going to read the Bible. And so we begin in January and we begin reading Genesis. And in Genesis we find it fascinating. And it explains so much of our existence and where we came from and why we're here and where we're going. We find strange stories in there as well, but all in all it, it fascinates us and draws us in and, and, and relates to our lives. Then we get to the book of Exodus and 
The first part of Exodus also is very fascinating about the, the, the enslavement of the, the sons of Israel and their, their liberation from Egypt and how God provided for them in the wilderness. And then we start getting a little bogged down towards the end of it. It's describing how we build the, or how they were to build the tabernacle and all the details about the tabernacle. And so we're, we're kind of trudging through the law codes and the description of the tabernacle. And then we finish and it's exciting at the end because God fills the tabernacle with His glory. And then we get to Leviticus. And we start reading in Leviticus, and we find that Leviticus is mostly law code. And law code in general, except perhaps for some maybe legal scholars, is not exciting reading for us. Uh, And there are a few narrative portions in there that that maybe get our attention once again, but it's, it's mostly law code. And then, to make matters worse for us, it's law code about things that are very, very foreign to us. Uh, it's law code about priests and blood and animals and, and the tabernacle and offerings and fire and altars and so on. Things that are very much out of our experience. And then also, I think there's a deeper reason why Leviticus is difficult for us. And that is because it is all about a holy God and how we can approach this holy God. And for us, all this emphasis on holiness and on approaching God in the right way may seem quaint or may seem kind of old-fashioned. It doesn't seem like a modern concern that God is holy and that He is the one who determines how we are to approach Him. We probably tend to assume, in general, in our culture, that if there is a God at all, He is surely okay with me, and that I'm at liberty to approach Him how I want to. Now, that uh, shows us why the message of Leviticus is all the more urgent for us, that we grasp what it says here about who God is and about how He can be approached, But I I want you to see that what it's doing is it's pointing us to the good news. It's pointing us to the good news that He can be approached, and in fact, He has thrown the door wide open for all who would come to Him. Now, Leviticus is named after the Levites, and the Levites are named after Levi. Who was Levi? If you think back to Genesis, we saw Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob had... Twelve sons and one daughter. And a Levi was the third son of the first wife. He also had four women. And uh, he was the third son of the first wife, Leah. And uh, he had a, a brother, an older brother, Simeon, and an older brother than that, which was Reuben. And there was also the, the, the sister. So these were full-blood brothers and sisters, not half-blood brothers and sisters. So we have Simeon, and then Levi, and then we have the sister Dinah. Well, I need to tell you a few stories about some things that happened, and that prepares us for the book of Leviticus. They went into the land uh, as sojourners, the, the, the land that God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and then to Jacob and to his sons, but they were not owners of anything yet. They were sojourners in the land. They were, they were living in tents, and uh, they were living near a city, and there was a princeling of that city that took a liking for Dinah, the, the sister. 
So the daughter of Jacob, the sister of Levi and Simeon. And they took advantage of her and they violated her. Well, when Levi and Simeon heard about it, they took matters into their own hands. And they tricked all the males, all the males of the city. And uh, after tricking them, they massacred them all. So this was Simeon and Levi. They took vengeance because what, of what this princeling had done to their sister. When it came time, when it came time when Jacob was about to die, Jacob was going to bless all of his sons. And what he did was, when you look at the blessing, and this is in Genesis chapter 49, the blessing on Simeon and the blessing on Levi was not exactly a blessing. He said, you all will be scattered. When, when your descendants come into the land and they all have their possessions, you all will not have your own possession. You all will be scattered because you took matters into your own hands. You took vengeance into your own hands and you slaughtered men. And so, what we find is, when they come into the land, indeed they were scattered. But I want you to see how the Levites were scattered. And I need to tell you another story about the Levites so that you know how they're scattered. Uh, do you remember last week, Moses was up on the mountain, and uh, he had, is receiving the law, and he took too long. He was up there for over a month, and the people wondered what had happened to him. And so he comes down, and the people are totally out of control. He comes down with the Ten Commandments that say, have no other gods before me and don't worship with, with uh, images. And what are they doing? They're dancing and partying around the golden calf saying, this is our God. And so they were totally out of control. And so, so Moses said, who was on the Lord's side? And the Levites were the ones who responded. And they drew their swords and they put order in the camp. And they were the ones who were on Moses' side, on the Lord's side, to get the camp back in order using their swords. And because of that, they received the priesthood and the service in the tabernacle as a gift. So, are you following this? When they come into the land, they were scattered. But they were scattered in order to be a blessing. So that curse, because of their slaughtering men in their vengeance, that curse actually became a blessing for the whole nation. They were scattered. They didn't have their own territory, but they were scattered in all the cities as the Lord's ministers. So we see here how the Levites are something of a standing example of how God can, can rescue good from evil, how God can turn evil, can God can turn cursing and turn it into a blessing. It's fascinating to see that there's a New Testament analog to this, where it looks like things are going very badly, and God turns it into a blessing. In the book of Acts, when Jesus was about to leave, He said, you will be my witnesses. He's telling His disciples that they will witness about Him. He said, in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Well, uh, they were still in Jerusalem. But God did something to get them out of Jerusalem. He scattered them. And we read in chapter 8 of Acts, it says uh, uh, there was a man named Saul who eventually became a disciple and a minister and a, an apostle. But it says there, and Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And it says, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Let me ask you something. Persecution, is that a good thing? Not in and of itself, is it? And, and, and being scattered from your homeland, is that a, a good thing? No, it isn't. They were driven out from their homes. But then we go down to verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. 
Preaching the Word. And so, persecution, not a good thing. Being driven out and exiled from your home, not a good thing in and of itself. Being scattered, not a good thing. But what did God do? He drove them out from Jerusalem to the next two places, Judea and Samaria, where they became a blessing to many. And so, these examples should encourage us that God can bring good out of the losses in our lives. That He can turn what looks like a tragedy into a blessing, not only for us, but also for others. Okay, now I think we can get into the book here. We know a little bit about the Levites. So say, are we clear on where the Levites came from and how they became the ministers? Okay, now I read the first chapter, and in the first chapter we hear about one of the five different types of offerings. And I'm guessing, I read the whole chapter because that's kind of the tenor of the book. And you could see, even from the first chapter, that it begins to get weighed down, for us anyway, in a number of details. But to try to summarize it, there were five different types of offerings. We read about one of them called the burnt offering. Now these offerings, it's kind of difficult to figure out exactly what they were about because they have overlapping meanings. Overlapping meanings. But basically, they are presenting things to God. They are presenting either animals, usually animals, or sometimes grain to God. And oftentimes, they have a focus on the fact that there's something wrong in our relationship to God. And these offerings are to help remedy the problem between God and us. So, let's look at these five types of offerings. There were burnt offerings, about which we read in chapter 1. And they could be of a bull, a sheep or a goat, or a bird. Now, we don't know exactly why, but it looks like they were taking people's economic situation into account. Which is more costly to offer? A bull, a sheep or a goat, or a bird? A bull. Then what's next? Sheep or a goat. And finally, a bird. So it looks like, it doesn't explain why you would be offering one or another, but it looks like it's a merciful thing. It's, it's giving opportunity to everyone to be able to participate, not only the rich. Everyone can participate and offer a burnt offering. And it says specifically, it's in order to make atonement for sin. It's in order to uh, take away the sin before God so that the offerer can be restored to a right relationship with God. After that come the grain offerings. And uh, there is some suggestion in later Jewish writing that the grain offerings were, were for the even poorer ones who were not able to offer a birds. Uh, but the grain offerings have a, a focus not on shedding blood, so it doesn't really focus on the atonement idea there, the, the making up for sin idea there, but rather uh, it reminds them of God's holiness and it reminds them of God's relationship. Because, because it says in these grain offerings, which were different types of grain, uh, these grain offerings should not have any leaven in them. They shouldn't have any leaven, but they should have salt. No leaven, but salt. And if we look back to the Exodus, they ate unleavened bread. And this idea of leaven throughout the the Scripture is this idea of sin infecting uh, the people and the mass and the lump. And so you, you get rid of that which is unholy. But salt, it says, is related to the covenant. It doesn't explain how, exactly why, but salt reminds them of God's relationship with them. So we have burnt offerings, we have grain offerings, and then we have in chapter 3, that's a chapter 2 grain offerings, chapter 3, we have peace offerings, shalom offerings. In shalom or peace is the idea of well-being. They're also called fellowship offerings. That is, these are offerings to, to encourage communion with God, 
to encourage well-being with God. And they're very similar to the idea of the burnt offering, but they focus on well-being, good relationship. Then, uh, in chapter 4, there's what's called the sin offering. And these are for sins that are committed unintentionally. And then it goes through different uh, examples of, of unintentional sins. It says, maybe the whole congregation does something, or maybe the priest does something, or maybe a leader does something, or maybe just an individual in the, in the, in the community does something, and these are to make up for that sin, to take away that sin. And then finally, there is guilt offering. And guilt offering, you see these are all overlapping. They all have to do uh, with, with making up, uh, remedying some problem between God and us that we have created. And the guilt offering also, it's very similar to the, the burnt offering, but it, it includes reparation. Reparation of damages. So it, it includes the idea of, of repairing that which was out of order. Now, you're probably already kind of bogged down, right? And we haven't even read the first five chapters, but it's, 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 it's hard to keep these things in mind, and they already seem like they're, they're kind of confusing. But I want you to see how useful, how useful these were for the lives of the Israelites. Because they kept, they kept reminding the Israelites constantly, constantly, to keep their focus on God, to give thanks to Him and to recognize that He was the one that provided animal, He was the one that provided grain, He provided for all their needs, to seek His forgiveness when they sinned, and also, it was a constant reminder that He is holy, and He is the one who determines how we are to approach Him. Let me ask you something, just to try to emphasize how useful these sort of things would have been. When you wake up in the morning, are you immediately thinking about God and focusing on Him? And then, throughout the whole day, is the tendency of your life, your heart, your thinking, your emotions to be focused on God? I'm not in your skin, but I have to confess that that's not how I am. I need help for my my focus to be brought back to God. And they had these, constantly, to focus on God. Uh, is your tendency, when you do something wrong, recognize it immediately and do whatever you can to make up for it, to confess it to God and to confess it to the other person and, and to take care of it immediately? Well, I hope so, but if you're like me, you know, and I, I tend to be kind of obtuse, I do things, and sometimes I'm not even aware I've done it, or sometimes I am aware, but I kind of think, I'll get to that later, it wasn't so bad, and, and this was a constant reminder for them. It's like, no, deal with it now, and here's the way to deal with it. Um, do we also remember constantly all the blessings we have simply to, to say, wow, I'm breathing air. Thanks be to God. Uh, I, I, can, I can hear music. Thanks be to God. Are we constantly, constantly, constantly giving thanks for God for all of His blessings, all of our meals, all of the things that we have in life? Well, no, we, we have to be reminded of those things constantly. And that's how these customs functioned in the lives of the the, uh, the Israelites. They needed that. We need that as well. Now, that takes the first chapters. But I, I just want you to see how, how useful these things were. Then we get into chapters 8 to 15, and we talk about the priests. So chapters 1 to 7 talk about the offerings. Chapters 8 to 15 talk about the priests. So the first thing they needed to do with the priests was to ordain them, to set them aside as priests. And they did that in chapter 8, but then the tragedy struck almost immediately. And here we have a narrative section that kind of gives a a break from the the law code. Uh, In chapter 8, Aaron and his sons are 
are ordained as priests. Um, but then we get to chapter 10, and here's where tra- tragedy strikes. Two of these sons, Nadab and Abihu, didn't get the message. The message is what? God is holy, and we must approach Him as He determines, right? Well, they said, we're ordained as priests now. And so they went in, and they offered a sacrifice of fire to God that He had not authorized. And tragedy struck, they died before the Lord. Because they took it upon themselves to approach God in the way that seemed right to them, but not the way that God had determined. Now, this um, this presents something of the tension of, uh, of the book of Leviticus, and that's this. The holy priests were not entirely holy. They had just gotten ordained. And then, almost immediately, these priests who had been set apart to be holy were not entirely holy. And here we see a tension that actually runs through the whole Bible. And that is this tension between the two meanings of holiness. Holiness, in one sense, is to be set apart by God. Set apart. And that's what these priests, they were set apart by God. So they were officially holy, right? They were sanctified. They were set apart for special use. But holiness in the Bible also means rectitude, purity, right living. And so they were officially holy, but they were not practically holy in their lives. And so we hear throughout Leviticus, we hear this call for those who are officially holy to be practically holy in our lives. Look at Leviticus chapter 11. If you flip forward to chapter 11, and here we find in verse 44 and 45, we could say this is something of the the summary, the summary statement of the meaning of Leviticus. And so if somebody stops you and says, uh, what would you do today? I went to church. What did you study? Leviticus. And they say, what was it about? Here's what it's about. Okay? Here's what it's about. Here's the summary statement. Leviticus 11:44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So what's the message? I am your God because I have redeemed you. I have rescued you. I have set you apart. Now, set yourselves apart and live in a holy way. Uh, That's uh, interesting. 44, it says... Holy yourselves, consecrate yourselves, sanctify yourselves, and be holy. So set yourselves apart, and then live as set-apart people. Do you recall, those of you who were with um, with us for the first Peter, uh, in first Peter we found that this was actually repeated there. Uh, this message is repeated there. If uh, you go to first Peter, for example, chapter 1, it actually quotes from Leviticus. Uh, Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. This is 1 Peter 1.13. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also should be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Quoting Leviticus. 
And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So you see what it's saying here. It's saying you who are officially holy, be holy. Why? Just like He said to the Israelites, because God redeemed you. God redeemed you, therefore, He set you apart, therefore, be holy. Now, um, Leviticus probably gets a kind of a bad reputation, just because it is, it is difficult. But I have heard people say things like, now, uh, we, don't, we don't want all this kind of this holiness stuff, uh, the, the law of the Old Testament. We want the love and the grace of the New Testament. But I want to read a section, and this is in Leviticus chapter 19. And this is from Leviticus. This is from Leviticus. And this is probably one of the best known verses from all the Bible. And it comes from Leviticus. Okay, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9. Um, If you go down to verse... Well, I just want you to see. Let's look at verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor, for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And so, it's building in here mercy. It's building in love. And if you keep going, it talks about that sort of thing. Uh, don't take advantage of the deaf. Don't take advantage of those who can't see. Uh, in verse 15, do no injustice in court. And then, uh, verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you encourage sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You ever heard that? Love your neighbor as yourself. When they asked Jesus, a teacher of the law said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment of all the many commandments in Scripture? And he said, I'm going to give you two. The first one is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the number two summary command comes from Leviticus. Now this is important because when we think about holiness, oftentimes we think about, and this is not incorrect, abstaining from that which is impure and practicing that which is pure. And that's correct. But mixed in with this is love for God and love for neighbor. This is not simply a question of personal sanctity. It is also a question of how we treat one another. And we find this all through First Peter as well. Uh, when we look at First Peter, we just that section we read that said, "You shall be holy as I am holy." But then, if we go down, it said, "Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart." So you see, holiness and love are not opposites. Holiness and love meet together. It is part of holiness to love one another. So we find this same call to us who have been set apart as believers in the New Testament as sanctified holy people to be holy and as we are practicing holiness to love one another sincerely, sincerely. So that's we looked at the offerings, we looked at the priests, and now we also want to look at the feasts. And the feasts take up chapter 16, Chapter 23, chapter 25, and other, other sections. But I want to see, I want you to see how these feasts went. 
Um, there were there were three Sabbaths. So Sabbaths are time to rest, rest days, or rest years. And it was one day every week. It was one year every week of years. That is to say, every seven years, there was a whole year of rest. And then, every seven times seven years, 49 years, after 49 years, there was an additional year of rest. So there were three Sabbaths. A weekly Sabbath, and then there was a Sabbath every seven years, and then there was a super Sabbath uh, every 49 years. And then in addition to that, there were six annual feasts. Six annual feasts. No, I won't test you on these. But, but I, I do want us to get a feel for this and how useful, how useful this was to the people of God and to us. And to us. Uh, there were three of these feasts which required trips to Jerusalem. And I just discovered something. Um, I didn't know why these three and not other threes required trips to Jerusalem. And I, I'm surmising now but one of them, uh, there, were, there were feasts in the spring, there's one feast in the summer, and there were several feasts in the fall. And guess what? Um, e- there's one out of each of these that requires a trip to Jerusalem. So rather than requiring, you know, bunching up trips to Jerusalem, there's one in the spring, there's one in the summer, and there's one in the fall. And that seems to be why these three, and the three that were required that you had to go to Jerusalem were the Passover, which was followed by a week of uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Those go together. So Passover one day, remembering the, 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 the Passover uh, in Egypt, how the angel of death passed over the people. And then seven days after that, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were supposed to go to Jerusalem. Then there was uh, 50 days after the end of that, there was Pentecost. They were also supposed to go to Jerusalem for that. And then uh, in the fall, in the seventh month, the seventh month, which was also a special month, there was the Feast of Booths. That's where they got to live in tents. And they lived in tents in order to remember that they had lived in tents after they had come out of Egypt. So in each season, they were supposed to go up to Jerusalem. Now, when you're reading the New Testament, you're reading the Gospels, you find that they went up to Jerusalem for the feast. And it describes which of... So it's one of these three feasts. Now let's look at these uh, briefly. Passover, we already looked at last week. Then there was the first fruits. The first fruits was to the, the first, the first grain or the first uh, the first sheaves that you get uh, from your your harvest. You present them to God and say thanks be to God because He's giving us a harvest. And then at the end of the feast, or I'm sorry, at the end of the harvest, that's when Pentecost came in. So that's 50 days later. Pentecost, the feast of uh, weeks or the feast of the end of harvest time. And what happened on the day of Pentecost in the New Testament? Do you remember? The Holy Spirit came down, exactly. That's right. So this is the the harvest time, right? And God was harvesting the nations there in Jerusalem. And it happened on the day of the Feast of the Harvest. And then there was trumpets. The first day of the seventh month. Um, Seventh month, there are three feasts. So the last three are uh, in the seventh month. The trumpets. And guess what they did uh, during the Feast of Trumpets? Any idea? They played... Trumpets. There you go. Okay. Right. Good. Good. Okay. Good. Yes. Okay. Uh, so they play trumpets. And it doesn't exactly explain why. It doesn't exactly explain why, but they did use the trumpet to call the assembly in the Old Testament. But a later tradition was that they read about Abraham and his sacrifice of Isaac and the provision of the lamb in his place. 
the ram rather, and the trumpet that they played was the ram's horn. So in later Judaism at least, they took this to be a remembrance of the ram that God provided to spare the son. Uh, Also, this has become called Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. That's not what it's called in the, in the Old Testament, but in Jewish tradition, this has become the Jewish New Year, the, the year uh, uh, or the day when they, they play the trumpets. Uh, then there is the Day of Atonement, which is Yom Kippur. And uh, then I already mentioned the booze or tabernacle. So the first day, the tenth day, and the fifteenth day of the month. But let's zero in a little bit on this Yom Kippur. Let's, uh, let's look at this, this Day of Atonement, because there's a whole chapter, whole chapter, and I commend this to your reading, um, chapter 16, in which the Day of Atonement is described. And this took place once a year. And on that one time a year, so they had this tabernacle the whole year, right? And there it was divided into sections. There was the courtyard uh, where anybody could, any Jewish person could enter. Then there was the, the, the holy place, and that's where the priests were doing all these, these offerings and sacrifices. And then they had a room, the Holy of Holies, and all year long, it was there. But they went into it. I'm sorry. He went into it. One person went into it only once a year. It was on Yom Kippur. It was on the Day of Atonement. And this is, these are the three steps of the Day of Atonement. First, the priest had to sacrifice a bull for his own sins. Then he sacrificed a goat for the sins of the people. And that he offered on the, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the altar inside, uh, where God's presence was conceived of as dwelling with his people. And then he confessed his sins, I'm sorry, he confessed the sins of the people over another goat, and he sent that goat out into the wilderness. So a bull dies for the priest's sins, and then a goat dies for the people's sins, and then another goat, the sins are confessed over that goat, and that goat is exiled, carrying away the sins of the people. Now, what... Um, what was the utility of these, these feasts? Well, you can imagine the same thing. They constantly focused the people back on God. They constantly focused the people back on God's holiness and God's love and the people's need of Him. Now, in the New Testament, we don't have a complicated series of feasts. Uh, we have a celebration that's very simple, and the purpose is similar. It's the Lord's Supper that we will soon be celebrating together uh, in the future. Uh, And the Lord's Supper has the constant purpose, reminding us of God, reminding us of His love, reminding us of His holiness, and reminding us that He is the one who determines how we are to approach Him. All uh, All of these... Laws, all of these sacrifices, all of this priesthood, all of, uh, all of these feasts had that purpose. And the message is this. If you want to approach God, you need to approach God through a holy priest and a perfect sacrifice. A sacrifice who can stand in for you. A sacrifice that can adequately represent you before God. That's what Leviticus is all about. Now, in terms of providing that priest and providing that sacrifice, Leviticus was a failure. Because Leviticus could not provide that holy priest and that perfect sacrifice. But rather, it was a pointer. It was a pointer to the coming, eventually coming, of that holy priest and that 
perfect sacrifice. And in fact, this is what all the Old Testament did. And there's all this repetition. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Priest after priest after priest. Tabernacle, then temple, then another temple, then another temple. And guess what the message of all that is? That none of it was sufficient. That none of these sacrifices could take away sin. That none of these priests was sufficiently holy. That none of these sacrifices could really stand in for a human. Because they were not human. They were animals after all. And the blood of bulls and goats could never take away human sin. And so this, this constant repetition and this constant need to be, to be done over and over and over had a message in and of itself. And that message is the message that, that comes to the fore when we get to the, the New Testament and that is brought out in what we've already read somewhat in, in the book of Hebrews. But the fascinating thing about this holy priest that finally arrives and this perfect sacrifice that is finally presented is that they are one and the same. That Jesus Christ is at the same time the holy priest, that one, that only one who can represent us before God. And He is at the same time that perfect sacrifice who can really stand in for us and bear our sin and atone for our sin and take it away. Listen to how how Hebrews describes it. Hebrews chapter 7. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And then we read in chapter 9, it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered, how many times? Once for all once for all, into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. What's the message of Leviticus? The message is that God is holy and that we are not. That we have fallen short. And if we are going to approach Him, we had better do it in the way that He determines. But Leviticus couldn't provide the final answer to that. It couldn't open that final way. It could only point forward to that final way. And that final way is Jesus Christ. So, my friend, I urge you to approach God. Approach God, your Creator, the One who made you, the One who is holy. Approach God. Go to Him. But please... Don't go to Him any old way you want to determine. Don't choose your way because God has already opened a way. And that way is Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. But to those who will go to the Father through Him, that person will never, ever be rejected but rather has this eternal redemption offered by a holy priest, the holy priest, offering himself as the perfect sacrifice. Let's pray.
Our God, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You for the Old Testament saints who year after year, decade after decade, century after century, offered sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, looking, looking forward to the time when that would all be fulfilled and it would all pass away. But they didn't live to see it, but we did. We look back and we see that You have fulfilled all of this in the person of Your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is both holy priest and perfect sacrifice. And I pray for all of us today. I pray that all of us would go to You, but not in our own way, but that You would grant all of us to go to You through Jesus Christ and Him alone. And then, having been set apart as Your holy people, that we ourselves would live lives of practical holiness. And we pray this in the name of the holy priest and the perfect sacrifice. Amen.